Well, good morning, folks. Um, I've been given a bribe this morning to see if, I, if I'll finish before a quarter to one. Um, been given a million pounds. This new million pound note was handed to me today. I don't know if you can see that with the king, the new king on it. So uh, let's see what I can do. have to get a, a move on. Um, it doesn't really take long Um, After you become a follower of Jesus Christ and, you know, joined a church community, before you realize that you have not, in fact, joined a fellowship of perfection. This is a fallen world, and the church is made up of fallen individuals who are in the process of being changed into the likeness of Jesus Christ but who have all got quite a distance to go towards that ultimate destination. And hence, problems and issues will inevitably arise within the church community. It has always been so. It was certainly no different in the early days of Christendom. Indeed, the Apostle Paul rebuked the Christian's at Galatia for biting and devouring one another. And those living in Corinth um, for suing fellow believers in the civic courts. And James, he too enjoins his readers to address wrongful attitudes within the assembly of believers. Indeed, the whole of chapter 4, which is our um, text for today, um, which some commentators consider to be the real centerpiece of James's letter, the whole of chapter 4 reads as a call to repentance. And the attitudes of which James's readers were guilty are ones that we too can often offend by. So, don't expect this morning's message um, to be a comfortable listen. Um, I've given this morning's uh, lesson, uh, or this morning's talk, the title of Away With the World. Away With the World, because it's these attitudes of worldliness that so infect um, the church. And that's what we'll be thinking about. So let's read together then James chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and, and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. 
Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us tends towards envy, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. So in time-honored fashion, I'm going to break up our passage into a number of sections. We're going to have five sections, each based upon a particular attitude that James would have us repent of. So the first section is verses 1 to 3, and the attitude in question is selfishness. James begins, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And note the sort of military language that he uses, fights, battle. James is not downplaying the disputes that have broken out amongst assemblies of believers. They are violent, if not actual physical altercations, then certainly verbal assaults. And James has no doubt about their origin. They are rooted in unrealized desires. Perhaps it's the lust for power or status. And we thought about that last time when we thought about, you know, those who coveted the position of teacher. And why are these desires unrealized? Well, for one of two reasons. Either because of a failure to ask God, people preferring to pursue their desires by their own means, or because they are asking with selfish motives, being merely interested in their own pleasure and not the good, not the welfare of the community of believers. And how easy it is to become dissatisfied with our lot, to resent others, to feel that my way would be better, 
to feel that I should be given a greater say, to feel that my wishes are being neglected. We are all sinners. Yes, praise the Lord, sinners who have been saved by grace, but we're still sinners. And how easy it is for our sinful nature to raise its ugly head and then cause division and quarrels amongst uh, believers. And many of us know from personal experience what it is like when schisms emerge within the church community and how they can so easily degenerate into nastiness and offense. So let's be on guard against the voice of our own selfish heart. Our second section then is from verse 4 to the first part of verse 6. And it is the attitude of worldliness, worldliness, which I am particularly focusing on this morning. James really now adopts the stance of an Old Testament prophet He addresses his audience as, you adulterous generation. And he lambasts them for friendship with the world, thereby making themselves the enemy of God. James certainly can't be accused of soft peddling. By adopting worldly attitudes and motivations, they are committing spiritual adultery. Of course, we know that marriage imagery was used in the Old Testament of God's relationship with Israel. In electing that nation, God had made himself Israel's husband. And Israel's prostitution of herself in chasing after foreign gods was then considered as an act of marital infidelity. Something that was personalized in the case of the prophet Hosea's wife, who literally became a harlot. Jesus likewise referred to the Jews of his day as you adulterous generation, Matthew 12, verse 39. And the marriage imagery extends to the church age, with the church said, of course, to be the bride of Christ. If we get into bed with the world, and the world is that whole system of society rooted in the rejection of God's authority and standards, by adopting its mindset and values, then we become spiritual adulterers and adulteresses. Sam Albury puts it in a similar way. He writes, Christians two-time God when we adopt the values of the world. What are those values? Well, things like self-promotion, aggression, pride, callousness, self-justification, hedonism or, you know, pleasure-seeking. Evidently, many of James's readers were guilty of these attitudes and needed to repent. And of course, we have to ask then, what about ourselves? Are we guilty of these sort of worldly 
attitudes. We need to examine our hearts, lest no matter what we profess with our lips, we live really as practical atheists, live just like the rest of mankind, live just like the world. James 4 verse 5 is generally considered to be the most difficult verse in this letter to translate and indeed one of the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament. And there's no way that I'm going to keep my a million pound note if I start to try to go into all the different interpretations of that verse. So I'm not even going to try. But whatever its precise meaning, I'm sure that we'll agree that we all face an internal conflict between obeying God and succumbing to the world. We are always under threat of split allegiance, of saying one thing, but actually acting just like unbelievers. And then we come to the third section, the rest of verse 6 through to verse 10, which is the attitude of pride, pride. And the mood doesn't get any lighter in this section. James has already dealt with the flesh, verses 1 to 3, and then the world, our previous section. And now we encounter the devil, Satan himself. We know that Satan's own downfall was caused by his pride. Satan was not prepared to play second fiddle to God. And pride is something that we must ourselves renounce. James would have us humble ourselves. We've been thinking about Jesus being lowly and meek, you know, being humble. And should we do so, should we humble ourselves, then we can claim two great promises. First of all, Satan will flee from us, verse 7. And secondly, the Lord will give us grace, verse 6b, and lift us up, verse 10. But note that this only applies where we repent of our pride. Our attitudes and actions need to be realigned with God's will. And there must be no levity in the matter of our sin. That's the idea behind you know, James saying about changing our laughter to mourning and our joy to gloom. It's not that God is a killjoy, but it's that we must be genuinely serious about sin, that we must consider it as serious and we must be remorseful over our proud rebellion against God's ways. And note, this is no passive experience. We are to resist the devil. We are to submit and come near to God. We are to wash our hands and purify our hearts. We are to grieve and mourn and wail over our sin. We are to humble ourselves. We must be active, cooperating with God's Spirit as He works His power within us. There is never anything automatic 
about sanctification in the Christian life. And may I say that sanctification, becoming more like Christ, will not happen unless we are personally committed to regular Bible reading, to regular prayer, to regular corporate worship, to regular fellowship, and to regular service for God. Try living the Christian life without those, and you will never do what James commands. Fourthly, verses 11 to 12, judgmentalism. This section begins with a familiar theme of James, the misuse of the tongue, that of course was our topic last time. Hear the misuse of the tongue in terms of slandering your fellow believer, you know, making less of your fellow believer, um, denigrating their reputation. To do so, says James, is to speak against the law, and presumably he's referring there to the royal law that he's already referred to in his letter of love your neighbor as yourself. And to speak against the law is to say that you know better than it. What is more, it is to usurp the lawgiver. The law was given by God, and he alone is the rightful judge. James is essentially saying, you know, if you are judgmental towards your brother or sister, James is really just saying, just who do you think you are? It's not for you to act as judge and jury of your brethren. They answer to the lawgiver, not to you. So rein yourself in. Stop playing God. Now, I'm going to return to the, this idea of not judging your brother or sister shortly. But there's no doubt that vilifying your brothers and sisters, whether it's done in public or in private, is wrong. So we would do well to heed James's admonition. The gratuitous running down of God's family and Christ's body, whether it be your fellow members of Castlereagh Fellowship or your fellow members of other churches or the church worldwide, is an evil that we should renounce. And then fifthly, verses 13 to 17, <coughs> presumption, presumption. Now listen, says James, which is good advice for any of you who are about to nod off or have nodded off. This time the focus is on those within the assembly of believers who were really like traveling merchants who sought to exploit the commercial opportunities that had been thrown up by imperial expansion and improved transport links, you know, famous Roman roads and all that. What they are condemned for is not making money per se, but rather it's the high-handed way in which they make their business plans. They draw up their business plans without any sense of dependence upon the Lord. They think that they are masters of their own fate. They are oblivious to the uncertainties of life the reality that they actually don't know what will happen tomorrow. They are forgetting about their own frailty and finitude, here today and gone tomorrow. 
a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. And they are living their lives without acknowledging that God is sovereign. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. They boast and brag. James describes such boasting, such bragging as evil or literally of the devil. And while such presumption may have been a particular feature of the upwardly mobile merchants of James's day, we shouldn't confine such presumptuous attitudes to one class or to one age of history. We too can be guilty of such presumption, of living life as if we're captains of our own destiny. It is, you know, good practice to preface our plans with Deo Valente, DV, you know, God willing, not as some sort of superstitious mantra. You know, when you say, we'll do this or that, DV, it's not the sort of the Christian equivalent of saying, fingers crossed. And please, if you are a Christian, don't do that. That is a pagan superstition. But as a genuine acknowledgement that God is sovereign and that we are utterly dependent upon him, even for our next breath, never mind our plans for next year or beyond. And James ends this part of his letter with another warning. Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Here we have what is called the sin or sins of omission. There are sins of commission and there are sins of omission. Sins of commission are bad things I have done. Transgressions of the law. Sins of omission are good things I should have done but haven't done. I don't go with one young boy's explanation of the difference. One boy said that sins of commission are the bad things I have done and sins of omission are the bad things I would have done if only I had half a chance. (laughs) James is saying that if his hearers disregard what he has said, then they are guilty. They cannot plead ignorance. He has told them that they need to repent of these carnal, worldly, and diabolical attitudes. Now they need to respond and put into practice what he has commanded. And obviously, all of the things that James has said to his readers are applicable to us. We, are to need, we need to renounce our selfishness, our worldliness, our pride, our judgmentalism, and our presumption. But in addition, and since I have called this talk away with the world, and I'm thinking particularly of that, you know, spirit of the world infecting believers, I want to challenge us to be prepared to stand against three worldly or societal pressures. And each of them, for uh, ease of remembrance, Each of them begins with the letter A. The first one is the pressure on us as believers to assimilate. 
Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Verse 4. How easy it is to go with the flow, to live like everyone else does, to adopt the same attitudes, the same values, the same behavioral patterns as the rest of society, to just blend in with others. That was the pressure faced by James's contemporaries, and it's the pressure that we face too. And yet we know that as believers, we are called upon to live countercultural lives. We are to be different to the world around us. We are to be salt and light. We are to shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul to the Romans. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12 verse 2. And of course, there's that famous um, translation of that uh, verse by J.B. Phillips. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. How sad if we have so conformed to our culture that we have lost our distinctiveness and offer then no meaningful challenge to unbelievers by the way that we live. You know, we can get so caught up with this life and its values and so adopt the same attitudes as everybody else out there that we have completely lost our distinctiveness. Secondly, the pressure to affirm, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Verse 12, we've seen that James condemns a judgmental spirit amongst believers. But unfortunately, our culture, and it has to be said, those within progressive Christianity, interpret this as an injunction against all judgment. Um, In her excellent book called Faithfully Different, the Christian author Natasha Crane argues that judging others is now considered to be the absolute ultimate sin. If you judge others, you've gone beyond the pale. Reference is usually made to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Rather, you must accept others, irrespective of their beliefs or their lifestyle. Indeed, it's no longer enough for you to tolerate others. You must now positively affirm others in their chosen identity and lifestyle. But let it be said loud and clear, Christians are called upon to make judgments, not biting loveless criticism, not hypocritical judgments. That's Jesus's point in Matthew 7 when he says about make sure that you take the plank out of your own eye before you remove the speck from your brother's. 
but you still need to be able to see that speck and you still need to call, call it out. Christians are exhorted to be discerning, to judge the spirits, to identify false teachers, and churches have to be willing to expel the person who refuses to repent of gross immorality. We're to uphold absolute morality and absolute truth. And to do so, we need to denounce what is wrong. We need to call a spade a spade. And we need to warn people that if they do not change their beliefs or do not live a different lifestyle, then they are going to encounter Jesus Christ as their judge. And Jesus will not excuse or go soft on their sinful rebellion from God's ways. Finally, the pressure to achieve. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Verse 14. The world tells us that we must make our mark by our accomplishments. When I was um, teaching, two of the annual events in the school calendar were Prize Day and Achievers Assembly. Prize Day was for those who had, you know, achieved outstanding academic success. And Achievers Assembly was to mark those who had significant sporting and musical achievements. Always there would be a guest speaker. And in virtually every single case that I attended, I could have told you beforehand what the guest's message would be. I could have virtually written it for them or the substance of it. It would have been this. Young people, if you're ambitious and work hard, there's no limit on what you can achieve. That is fine-sounding nonsense. The vast majority of young people won't achieve all they want. The celebrity guest stands out precisely because they're not the norm. They're the exception. Most people won't make a name for themselves. Enrico Tice has a very effective way of reining in our proud ambition. He poses the question, how many of you know the first name of your great-grandfather? I don't. You see, you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The reality is that only what is done for Christ will matter for eternity. Your earthly accomplishments will not matter one jot. As C.T. Studd famously put it, we have one life. It soon will be passed. What we do for Christ is all that will last. So I say, be humble. Be realistic about yourself and invest in your eternal inheritance and not in trying to make a name for yourself in this life. Surely serving Christ and bringing him glory should be motivation enough. Away with 
the world. I think I'm going to have to give Chris's million pound note back. I think I've breached my time limit. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.